Join me in prayer as we uh, come around God's word together this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come today to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't even begin to, to fathom the fact that you as God would come in the person of Jesus and suffer in such a, a horrible and horrific way just to save us, people who were your enemies. And yet that is the extent of your love for us. So we pray this morning as we reflect on the cross, on the events surrounding it, that you would indeed speak to our hearts. Remind us afresh this morning of our great need for you as a saviour, but also of your great love for us in saving us. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> we know over the next couple of days, people will gather in places all around the world, whether it be in churches, in homes, maybe out in the open air, perhaps huddled in basements in fear of their lives. But they will gather there to remember and celebrate the death of a Jewish man some 2,000 years ago. Sounds rather bizarre, doesn't it? People celebrating the death of this guy who died so long ago. Especially when you realise that this particular man was actually executed as a criminal in his day. I mean, look at this instrument behind me. A cross. It's an instrument of torture and death. The Romans used it as a means of instilling fear and terror in the hearts of the people of their day. The message of this particular instrument was, if you step out of line, this is what will happen to you. A cruel and excruciatingly horrific death. It might take people hours and sometimes days to die on a cross. In fact, it was not uncommon to see people dying these kind of deaths on crosses dotted all across the landscape around cities and towns back there in the first century. So why is it that we have a cross as the focus of our worship this morning? Why would people around the world for centuries hold an instrument of torture and death in such venerable esteem? Well, it's due to the death of one man because through his death, the whole meaning of the cross and what it symbolised has changed. That man was Jesus Christ. Or should I say Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. 
What makes the death of Jesus so different and why does his death fundamentally change the way people view the cross? Well, that's what Easter is all about. That's why we gather in this place today and on Sunday morning to remember. Because because of Jesus, the cross becomes not a symbol of death, but instead a symbol of life and of hope. This morning we're going to look into Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. And we're going to look at this account of Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, we're going to look at a few things will hopefully help shed a, shed a bit of light for us on this particular truth today. So if you've got your Bibles there, you might like to turn with me to, uh, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. But before we actually get to the resurrection, uh, to the, sorry, to the uh, crucifixion, let us just uh, rewind a bit, shall we? Let's go back to the early hours of that Friday morning. What took place under the cover of night was a travesty of justice. The religious leaders of Jesus' day for a long time had had it in for Jesus. He was a threat to them. I mean, he challenged their religious practices, he challenged their motives. Jesus himself was gaining a huge following throughout Jerusalem and Judea and, and other parts of Israel and further afield. The religious leaders were jealous of Jesus' popularity. They were angry that Jesus just did not conform to their religious ways. And so they wanted him dead. They wanted him removed completely from the picture. But they had a problem. They didn't have the authority to carry out that kind of punishment. Only the Romans did. But then an opportunity suddenly arose. One of Jesus' followers had agreed to betray him. And there in the middle of the night, that Thursday evening, Judas Iscariot led the Jewish priests and their, uh, the, the, the guards and that that they took with them. They, he led them to Jesus and, he had, and they arrested him and brought him to the residence of the chief priests there in Jerusalem. And it was there that he was put on, on trial before this Jewish religious council. And this is where we pick up the story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. And this morning I want us to note just three simple things about Jesus that point to the fact that there was more going on here than just a Roman execution. The first thing we need to, uh, to notice is Jesus' silence. We see that in verse 5 of Mark 15 this morning. Jesus is now before Pilate, the Roman governor of the day. Pilate was the one who held the power of life and death over Jesus, or so he thought. And Pilate is trying to determine whether or not Jesus deserves to be crucified. And he asks him in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Let me begin at verse 1 of 15, chapter 15. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. 
And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges that these people bring against you? Pilate asked Jesus if he is indeed the king of the Jews. The only way that the Jewish religious leaders could could get Pilate to kill Jesus was actually to bring political charges against him. Pilate wouldn't be interested in any religious charges. It had to be that Jesus was a political foe to the Roman establishment. And so they bring him before, before Pilate and it says that this man proclaims to be king of the Jews. In other words, he's a revolutionary. He's an insurrectionist. He's one who, will in, who, who is going to disrupt the peace and bring about anarchy in this particular part of the Roman Empire. In fact, we see in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23 and verse 2, that they accuse Jesus of many things. He says, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, if you say so. Not really much of an answer, is it? But as Pilate begins to continue, to, as he continues to push on this, particular, on this particular line of questioning, if you like, Jesus then goes silent. And it amazes Pilate. I mean, think about the situation for a moment. Here is Jesus, a man on trial for his life. You would think a man facing a trial like this, facing a cruel and horrible death on a cross, knowing that that was what was waiting him, that he would be pleading his innocence and trying as much as he possibly could, by any means possible, to deny these accusations and to get himself off the hook. Yet we read in this passage that Jesus says nothing. Pilate says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate is absolutely stunned. He's amazed. Pilate's never encountered anything like this before. He's never encountered anyone like this before. Some 800 years previously, the prophet Isaiah had written these words about the one who would come, who would be God's instrument to defeat evil and to save his people. He writes in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shear is silent, So he opened not his mouth. 800 years before Jesus, those words were written. And here in, before Pilate, as Jesus stands on trial on that that morning, we see the fulfilment of that particular prophecy. Why was Jesus silent? 
It was because Jesus knew that this was God's predetermined plan in order to save mankind. That if he was to have victory over evil and over sin and over death, then Jesus would have to go to the cross and give his life. That he would have to die. So Jesus trusted in the plans and purposes of the Father. It begs the question, doesn't it, for us today? For people following in the footsteps of Jesus, do we trust God like that? In the midst of facing overwhelming hardship and difficulties in our lives? Do we trust that God's purposes and plans are being worked out and that he is the one in control and that he is the one who loves us and cares for us? Jesus was silent. Next thing I want us to uh, focus on is next is, is Jesus' substitution. We see that in verse 15 of our passage this morning in Mark 15. See, Pilate, knowing that Jesus is innocent, by the way, Pilate was convinced that Jesus was an innocent man, that these charges that were being brought against him were trumped up charges by these religious leaders. In fact, Pilate says later that, that Pilate sees that, in fact, that the, uh, these chief priests, these religious leaders are envious of Jesus and that's why they want to get rid of him. So he tries one last time to free Jesus. So it was his custom at the feast, at the Passover feast, which was the time that this particular trial was taking place. It was, it was Pilate's custom to actually release for the crowd a prisoner of their choosing. And it just so happens that in the Roman jail was a man called Barabbas. In fact, that's probably his surname because Bar actually stands for son of and Abbas would be the name of his father. So that would be his, his last name. In fact, there's, there's probably a, a good reason to actually understand that Barabbas' first name itself was actually Jesus too. Jesus Barabbas. This man was known as a murderer and a troublemaker. Look at verse 7 of, the, of, of Mark 15. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. In other words, Pilate offers him a choice. Will I release... Jesus Barabbas or will I release Jesus whom you call the king of the Jews well Mark informs us that the chief priest stirred up the crowd to call for the release of Barabbas instead the chief priests in verse 11 stirred the crowd up to have him release for them Barabbas Now, we need to take great care here 
to understand what is truly being, what truly Mark is trying to, 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 to point out for us as his readers. On one hand, we have Pilate's mind and in reality, an innocent man. And on the other hand, we have a guilty man. Brabus's guilt was proven. In fact, his fate was already sealed. He would be put to death by the Romans by crucifixion on a cross. And perhaps the crosses that have been prepared for that day, one, one of which those crosses would have been the cross that Barabbas was about to die on. But ultimately in which Jesus himself would die. And because the crowd called for Barabbas' release instead of Jesus, we see that a guilty man goes free and an innocent man is put to death in his place. And folks, this is the essence of the cross. An innocent man dies in place of the guilty. An innocent man takes upon himself the punishment that the guilty deserved. Listen again to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord, that is God, has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. Looking back on the cross, the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous or the innocent, for the unrighteous, the guilty. And he did that in order to bring us to God. Folks, we see this cross. And when we remember the death of Jesus upon that cross, what we should see is Jesus Christ dying in our place because we are the guilty in God's sight because of our sin. We were the ones who deserved to bear the full wrath, the full righteous and just punishment of God for our sins. That is justice. That is true justice. But yet in his divine love for us, God chose to die in our place. So that his justice could be upheld. So that the punishment was actually carried out. But that we would be set free from that wrath. And forgiven for our sin. And be made right with God. To be brought near to him. How do we know then that Jesus' death accomplished what he set out to. I want you to look this morning at Mark 15, verses 37 and 38. Let me read it to you. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, 
says after Jesus had been hanging on the cross for some six hours. From roughly nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. It says, as Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. That loud cry, by the way, is most likely the cry, it is finished. And it wasn't a cry of defeat or surrender. It was a cry of victory of Christ on the cross. It is finished. It is complete. There is nothing more that needs to be done in order to bear the punishment of God's rightful justice on all of mankind's sin. As it was laid on Christ there on that cross. Jesus says it is finished. And he breathed his last and he died. And Mark then mentions something incredibly significant in verse 38. And he says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple of the curtain. I'm sorry, the curtain of the temple. It's all right, it's early. (laughs) That curtain, by the way, like we've just been through a series in the tabernacle here in uh, in, in the church, and so uh, many of you will understand what that curtain actually symbolised. But it was the same in the temple. That curtain was the, the means by which it was a barrier between man and God. On the other side of that curtain was what was called the Holy of Holies. It was symbolic of the very dwelling place of God, the very presence of God. And no one could, in, could dare go in there apart from the high priest and him only once per year. And he would go in there once a year after going through a ho- offering a, a whole lot of sacrifices and going through a whole lot of ritual cleansing and stuff for his own safety. Would he go into that place and he would take with him an offering of blood that he would sprinkle around in that place to actually make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, to turn away God's wrath. To turn away God's anger towards sin, but it would only be on a temporary basis until Jesus would come and die. Ultimately for the forgiveness of sin, so there would be no more sacrifices needed. That temple acted as the barrier. No one could go past it. And we're told that when Jesus died on the cross, that, cur- that, that curtain, sorry, was ripped from top to bottom. This was no light, you know, little, not light, light, lacy kind of curtain or something like that. This was a very heavy piece of material that was probably around about 60 feet high and was incredibly thick. And we're told that it was split from top to bottom, symbolizing that it was God himself who was doing the tearing. Opening up the way into the very presence of God for mankind. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And see, when Jesus died on the cross, it signified that his death, his shedding of blood, removed the barrier between man and God due to our sin. Jesus' silence. Jesus' substitution. And finally, the last thing to note is Jesus' suffering. 
Having heard the wishes of the crowd, Pilate says to them, What shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? The crowd yells out, Crucify him! Again, Pilate asks, What evil has he done? But the crowd yells out more and more, Crucify him! Crucify him! And there's a chant that goes up from the crowd. And Pilate starts to get, you know, really uneasy, thinking there's going to be a riot that breaks out. And so he agrees that Jesus will be taken away and put to death. And there, in behind where, uh, where Pilate would have been making that judgment, in the praetorium, the, the palace where, where um, Pilate would have been living, 600 Roman soldiers, we're told, or a battalion of Roman soldiers, in verse 16 and 17, took Jesus out the back and they beat him and they mocked him and they spat on him and they scourged him. Can you imagine that? One man amongst 600 soldiers as they mocked him, as they put a crown of thorns upon his head and they beat it down on his skull, as they punched him in the face, as they tied him to a to a some kind of securing point and then they whipped him with a with a whip that was that was embedded with pieces of, of, of metal and pieces of bone that would literally strip the flesh off a person's body as it hit and as they pulled it back. They tore and and then they took him out and crucified him. And as Jesus there is there on that mountain, as he is suspended there on that cross, we read that the people that are there at the foot of the cross taunted him. The religious leaders of the day, the people who were supposed to be the spiritual ones of the day, taunted Jesus on the cross. This dying man and in the, the shameful and horrible state that he is in, they taunted him and they mocked him and they said, come down and save yourself. Prove to us that you are the son of God. And the irony here is that if Jesus had done what they had asked, yes, he might have saved himself. But he wouldn't have saved those who could not save themselves, us. Jesus was dying so that even those who mocked him would have the chance to be reconciled to God. Can you believe that? As he hung on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all the sins of mankind. He bore the righteous judgment of God, symbolized by that cry of forsakenness. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his life. And he did so in order to save those very people who opposed him. Those very people who ridiculed him. Those people who mocked him and denied him. And folks, today, you and I need to see ourselves in that picture as those people. 
Because before God revealed to us the truth that we needed a saviour and enabled us to put our faith and trust in Jesus, we were those same people. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, whilst we were still enemies with God, Christ died for us, for you and for me. And that's why we see the cross this morning as the defining symbol of God's love and justice. God's love for all mankind, that he would go to the greatest lengths in order to save us, even dying for us. That, folks, is the glory of the cross. That is the glory of the cross. Of course, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Or Jesus' death would have been entirely in vain. Because we would always need to view the cross in light of the resurrection. They go together like the two sides of a coin. And Dale's going to speak more about that on Sunday. And I trust that you'll be here on Sunday at 9 o'clock and to be able to celebrate the resurrection. Celebrate Christ's victory over Satan, sin and death and, and his victory that he has purchased on our behalf so that we can have hope in his name. Folks, that is why Easter and the cross are to be celebrated. And that's why, as David mentioned earlier, today is called Good Friday. And my prayer is that as we reflect on these events over this coming weekend, that we might, along with that centurion, that Roman centurion who stood there at the cross, who had seen probably countless people put to death on the cross, he had never seen anyone die in the way that Jesus died. He'd never come across anyone like him and that led him to declare at the death of Jesus, truly indeed this man was the Son of God. And my prayer is that as we celebrate this Easter together, we might all be able to say that together, truly this man is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray this morning that uh, that as we reflect on the... Um, the death of Jesus Christ, that we might not just see it as just some event in history that really just has no bearing on us. But in fact, Lord, we will see it as the means by which you, the sovereign God, the creator of all things, reach down to us in our need in order to show your love for us, in order to save us from our sin and to reconcile us to yourself. Because that is our most deepest need, Father, for us as mankind to be reconciled to you, to have our sins forgiven, to be cleansed. We pray, Lord, this morning that uh, as we just uh, come now around the communion table, as we, as we reflect on the elements, the, the, the bread that symbolises the body of Jesus given for us and the grape juice that symbolises the blood shed for us, that we will just be so thankful in our hearts to you today. And that, that, that in itself would inspire us and challenge us to, to, to see, you know, where do we stand with you right now? Are we indeed that person who has been reconciled or are we still apart from you? I pray, Lord, this morning that, uh, that you would help all of us see our need and rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has done all that is needed in order to save us from our sins. We thank you in his name. Amen.